We are jumping back into Christ conflict, and it's subtitled Contending for the Truth. It is a conflict. It does require contending, and it is all about the truth. There is a truth in this world. It's God's truth, and we want to know his truth. Our society has increasingly diverse views of who God is or isn't. And there's an ever-present conflict between the true church's views and the views of our existing society, and that gap is ever-increasing. So the church holds to a truth, and while we may have used to have been a a country built on maybe some Judeo-Christian values and and, and principles, and we saw that lingering effect in our world, that, that effect is far less visible now as we grow more and more pluralistic in our society. And because of it, we have to be able to understand and identify what is happening and so that we can know where the church stands in all of this. Now, Paul the Apostle was called by God to plant churches, right? But also to build up churches and help disciple those churches and equip others to help disciple those churches. And he wrote a number of letters to those churches he planted. And uh, in this series, we're going to hear some instruction from Paul the Apostle regarding the early church and what he in- instructed them to how to respond in the most Christ-like way to the diverse false teachings and practices that were influencing the early church. So this is nothing new, the things that we experience. The conflict that exists today is nothing new. It's always been there. And and so we're going to learn from what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, a letter he wrote to the church of Colossae. He said this, see to it that no one takes you captive. That's a kind of a militant word, actually, almost, almost like that no one takes you hostage by or through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. I've got this graphic behind me, and we're going to leave that up for a minute. And what you'll see is that there's a spiritual conflict, and that's what we dealt with in week one, where we talked about the spiritual forces of the world that Paul spoke to in verse 8, and and how the spirit of the world is in conflict with the spirit of God. And, And that conflict is eternal and existing in a perpetual state until Christ does return and finally settle that conflict once and for all. But between now and then, that spiritual conflict is impacting every part of our lives, including our philosophy. In week two, we talked about the philosophical conflict and how the spirit of the world influences our philosophies. In other words, the way we think about everything about life. You might think that, oh, I'm no philosopher. That's, that's, that's above my pay grade. I don't use language like that. Well, everybody is a philosopher. You have a philosophy about every part of your life that as long as you're choosing something about living, you have a philosophy. And the spiritual realm will influence that philosophy. Then in week three, we talked about how those philosophies bleed down into society, our political views, and even the faith communities that we belong to. And so today we're starting week three and we're talking about those impacts on our society. Today is all about the societal conflict. Now, as we've said, each of these conflicts has a battlefront and the battlefront in the societal conflict is related to the ethics of that society, right? Ethics are diverse in our society. Ethics are, are playing out in our society. What ethics are, is really simply what's right and wrong. That's the definition. It's a subset of philosophy. 
And it's how we think through all of the decisions that we make about what's right about this or what's wrong about this. And so our society has diverse ethics, and that means a diversity of views about what is right and wrong. We're not monolithic anymore. It's not everybody believing the same thing and and thinking the same way. And so we have to respond to that. Now, you might think about this through the lens of morality, what's right and wrong. It's that simple, right? And all of that's going to be based on, our morality is based on what we believe to be true. That's why we called this series Contending for Truth. Because what we believe to be true is going to inform all of this. And so today we're going to touch on two of this generation's biggest ethical conflicts. Again, I warned you about this not being appropriate for young people. We are talking today about racism, and and that's less unappropriate. You know, we we talk to our kids about some of those struggles. Uh, We're going to talk about racism, and then we're going to also talk about abortion. (laughs) Wow. Both of those in the same service. That's a big hunk of meat to chew on. I know. I was been a little anxious about this one all week long. And again, for those of you that are here for the first time, again, we don't, we don't make a habit of talking about these topics. Like we're not always up on some hobby horse about these big controversial issues, but we have to talk about these things. And so we're talking about it today. Glad you came. <laughs> now, before we go there, we all have biases and experiences that shape our views. And before we start to hear from me or even from God about this, we've got to ask some questions like, why do I think the way I think about these topics? What has led me to the conclusions that I've already drawn about this, right? And and beyond that, more importantly, we've got to ask, what does God believe about this? We're a Christ-centered community. That's part of our mission statement. And if we're Christ-centered, we have to center our thought, our life, our what we believe to be true on Christ. And so we've got to ask, what does God believe about these topics? And And so this is your last chance. If the kids haven't left yet, I'm going to dive in. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God for help. Father, we just thank you for your presence. You are obviously present with us today. Oh, Lord, so sweet to be in a place where you abide. God, you're just touching us today. You're you're opening our hearts, Lord. You're speaking even when we can't hear you. And so we're asking, God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open the ears of our soul to hear and receive from you, Lord, that as we discuss difficult topics, that, Lord, there would be a spirit of unity and the bond of peace that would keep us bound in Christ, bound in the one baptism, the one faith, the one confession that we have as believers in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So ask this question of yourself today. Is my view of racism and abortion right or wrong? Now, I'm going to give you a lot of content today. It might be like a fire hydrant. I'm from Philly. We grew up opening up fire hydrants on the street. Have you ever tried to drink from a fire hydrant? I have. It's almost impossible. And so what we would do is we would like take a hat or like a little bucket or whatever, right? And you catch the water, then you drink the water, right? And so so I want to encourage you as I pour all of this content out, catch the water with something. Maybe it's a notepad. Maybe you'll go back to our podcast later this week and, and, and listen to it. It's on Spotify. It's easy to find. But you might need to digest this over time, right? 
And, and, and I want to encourage you to do that because these are big topics that we really want to, to inspire thought in the life of this body. Uh, that being said, uh, there's a ton of nuances about these two topics. There's a lot of angles, a lot of variables that I could begin to talk about. I can't talk about them all today. And so if there's something that you're burdened to hear about around these topics and you're like, you know, you really should have said that thing that I would have said if I was up there preaching that message. Before you say that, just know, man, we have really done a lot of work around these topics actually for many, many, many years. And we are very aware of and sensitive to the, to the, the nuance of this. And, uh, and I want you to be understanding not only that will I be limited in the presentation today, uh, but that I'm wide open to discussion. And if there's something that you would like more clarity on, man, I'm accessible. We're easy to talk to. And so anything that you would like clarity on, don't hesitate to reach out. Amen? All right. So since we're talking about ethics, we're going to ask who or what is informing and determining what I believe to be right and wrong. What, what is shaping my ethics? Is it the, the influencers, Right. On social media, is it the influencers in Hollywood, our, our activist actors? There's a lot of them these days. Is it the arts world? Zoom out from Hollywood a little bit. Is it the, the, the music we listen to? Is it the performers and the, the artists that should be shaping what we think about these hard topics? Because they've got a lot to say about it. Is it our political leaders? The politicians up there on the hill? Are, are they the ones that that we should be listening to about these topics? Maybe, maybe not. Is it the laws, the legislation that they make? If it's legislated, does it mean it's truth? Not necessarily. Is it our family of origin that is informing the way we think about these things? Is it our personal experiences? Is it hearing the storytelling of other people's personal experiences? And the empathy and the compassion that we begin to feel, the emotional stirring that we begin to, to experience, is it that that should be informing what we believe about these things? Is it the spirit of the world or the spirit of God informing what we believe about these issues? See, there's a difference between Jesus followers and those who are not regarding how we determine what our ethics are. Jesus followers are mandated by God to assess if our ethics are biblical or not. When I ask the question, what does God say about it? I'm really asking, what does the Bible say about it? I know the world is probably less interested in that, although the world will affirm when the Bible finally just gets it right that one time. Oh yeah, you Christians got that golden rule thing, right? We should live it sometimes, but, but they're not looking to the Bible for their, for their ethical foundation. We do, because we're Christ-centered. As a matter of fact, Christ-centered people should have an ethic informed by the Bible. Those who are not following Christ will not. And so we're going to evaluate these issues through a biblical lens. And the first cultural issue we are going to jump into is the conflict of racism. Now, let's consider for just a moment. When I moved to Mississippi in 97, I'll be honest with you, I had some stigmas in my mind about what I was going to come to. Some of them stigmas proved to be true. When I got into school, I, I experienced some racism. Um, some of those stigmas proved to be, you know, less true in certain places. Now, it's not just Mississippi. I come from Philadelphia. And my upbringing experience uh, involved a lot of exposure to racism. My dad was from an Italian-Irish family. And uh, his whole family, man, if you weren't Italian-Irish, 
Catholic from Juniata Park in Philly. <laughs> they hated you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and my dad happened to marry a Jew. You know, so I'm half Jewish. And, and so, so my dad, even in my home, would use racist derogatory language as he cursed my mom regarding her ethnicity. I, as a half Jew, took it personally. <laughs> now, my dad died and repented uh, before he did and was a brother in Christ and regretted a lot of those things. And so I don't mean to dishonor him, but my point is that I've seen it even in my own home. And it exceeded beyond what we experienced in regards to just his disdain for my mom's cultural upbringing. And, and so a lot of you have had experiences, many maybe even worse than that worse than mine. And if it wasn't your experience, maybe your parents did, maybe your grandparents did, and you've, you've heard the stories, and it's painful. Because that is painful. It's a form of rejection. Man, it feels hateful. It feels devaluing. And so it's real. And it hurts. But if we're going to really unpack the root of racism, we actually have to look deeper than that word racism. So racism is the sin of partiality. I said we're going to examine this through the lens of the Bible, right? You don't find the word racism in the Bible. We do find what that expression looks like in the Bible, but the word that's really most appropriate for this subject is partiality. Um, and so what is God's ethic on partiality? Well, partiality is when someone shows favor to one person over another based on skin color, cultural background, economic class, or any other differences. In other words, partiality could be, could be reframed as prejudice. And racism fueled by prejudice blossoms and becomes this big thing, but it all roots back to the sin of partiality. And partiality is not just expressed through racism, it's expressed through classism, it's expressed through sexism, it's expressed through every other etcetera-ism. Any time where we show partiality to another people group, more so than you do another, it's sin. And it has existed since the Garden of Eden, when the curse of sin fell on humanity when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and that sin has been a curse on humanity since all humanity. All humanity is subject to the sin of partiality. Now, most people would say that I don't show partiality against any other people group. I don't discriminate. But because it's sin... And because it's woven into the fabric of humanity, we have to acknowledge that every single human being who has a soul is tempted by this sin. It's sin nature and no one is exempt. And the challenge is, is that the topic is so politicized. You have political pundits expressing these narratives that really do exploit a lot of emotion, not because it's not emotional. Uh, it is emotional. It's, it's, it's deep. It, it touches a nerve at, at, at this core level of a person when you think about these things. But, but we see so many people leveraging that emotional response to exploit that. And they're actually championing that narrative under the pursuit of truth and justice. Unfortunately, those narratives are not always truthful nor just. Because not everybody's Speaking from the Spirit of God, they're oftentimes speaking from the Spirit of the world. 
And so while some people are, are, are framing up a narrative that says that certain groups are inherently going to show more partiality than others, well, this particular group's going to be more racist. They just can't help themselves. That's not true. It's sin. And any group is subject to that temptation. No group more than another. Others might say and present a narrative, maybe on a different news network, <laughs> that say that racism doesn't exist at all. And they belittle it. And they say, well, if you just stop talking about it. And, and while, while there's some nuance there, that's not all true either. There, it, this is not just a narrative to divide. This is not just a narrative to, to separate people, although I understand how it's leveraged that way. I understand how, how people use it for personal gain and, and to accomplish agendas and so on and so forth, but, but there's racism. And, and so the Bible speaks to this. The Bible speaks to this issue of partiality in James chapter 2, and I think the reason that it was written is because it does exist and because it's not exclusive to any one people group. And in James chapter 2, verse 1, James the brother of Jesus writes to the church in Jerusalem, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I love how he elevates the Lord of glory. You better not do that because he's the Lord of glory. And if you're in him, you ought to be humble by that reality, right? And he goes down in verse nine, he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why do you think he had to say this? Well, I think it's because people were trying to justify their behavior and saying, oh, well, I'm just going to hang out with the people I'm most comfortable around, whose culture I understand, who look like me, who act like me, who think like me. I like my echo chambers. Maybe it was because they just had preference. Maybe it was preference for a certain class of people. I like to spend money. I like to be around people that like to spend money. That way I don't feel bad when I spend my money. I've been that person that doesn't have money. <laughs> and you're like, I, don't, I can't go there with you. <laughs> I love that the people in my life that are more comfortable will take me anyway. because they don't show partiality, but partiality cannot be reduced to comfort or preference. It's sin. And the early church dealt with these same things. Now in Colossians chapter three, Paul speaks to this. If we were to stay in the book of Colossians where he lays out all of these ethnicities and he says, hey, we're none of these, we're one in Christ. But I'm not going to use that scripture because I actually want to show you that it was a bigger problem than just the church in Jerusalem. He even writes to the church in Galatia in chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. Gentile is anyone that's not a Jew, in other words, right? There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to another church. Obviously, this was a widespread problem that demanded attention. And so Paul's dealing with these three specific areas of partiality that we say don't exist, right? And, and he says, regarding the Jews and the Gentiles, hey, we're neither of those. We're one in Christ. And the Bible opposes a, a form of racism where we, where we show preference to a specific group. I like the word ethnicism. Really, we're all one human race. I do believe that. 
unless we started being racist towards like aliens, apparently there's some aliens around, They've been flying around lately, you know, and if you want to be racist towards them, I'll call you racist for sure. But at, at, in a more specific way, this is ethnicism. These are different ethnicities that are all in a similar place and, and there's partiality being shown. And the Bible opposes it. And it actually confronts favoring one ethnicity over another. I love when you look around our church, I'm looking right now. Um, our church across all four locations includes diversity, is, is faithful to this text. There's people of diverse ethnicity in different leadership positions with great influence in the church, with, with great enriching, adding a value to this faith community. We actually have probably a more diverse than the de demographics of our community that we're planted in, which really excites me. That's one of our heart's desires. We want, to be, we want to be diverse. And I love that there's a safe place for people to come that might not be sure if there could really be a place where they could be welcome, where they can actually be welcome. Do you guys feel that way about Northwood Church? I do. He sees, says there's neither slave nor free. Now, if you've done any work on this topic, you're probably like, why didn't Paul condemn slavery here? Why is he just saying there's neither slave nor free? Why didn't he all out just forthright condemn slavery? Well, if you'd have done a little more work, you would have probably found out <laughs> that the Bible as a whole condemns slavery. The Bible promotes something called Imago Dei. It's a theological framework that's woven all throughout the text that says every individual person has equal worth, value, purpose, potential in the kingdom of God. More specifically, Imago Dei means they are made in the image of God. Every person, no matter their ethnicity, they bear the image of God on their being and therefore cannot be and should not be devalued. Therefore, any institution that would devalue them would be explicitly contrary to what the Bible teaches. So the Bible, by nature, deconstructs and, and, and um, opposes slavery. And so Paul didn't need to preach to the choir. They already knew that. But more specifically, it's also because 20% of the Roman Empire were slaves. Very common. Now, slaves are, at this time, not necessarily like the way that we think about slavery. Here in our American context, we easily imagine chattel slavery. That was a different brand of slavery, more grotesque. Not saying any slavery is okay, but I'm just saying it was, it was different. And, and, and so Paul's not even speaking with that necessarily in mind. Now, it's not that there weren't difficult situations where people were enslaved as prisoners of war. Man, like people were conquering left and right. There were prisoners of war. You know what I love about the church, Christianity? Christianity is actually, um, it was a Christian brother that came from a family of devout Calvinist Christians that actually helped to frame the Geneva Convention that undid the barbaric acts that were committed against prisoners of war. His, his name was Henry Dunant. So out of Christianity flows this even opposition to mistreatment of prisoners of war. Christianity obviously has an ethic that's different than the rest of the world. But it wasn't just prisoners of war. Christianity helped him influence at a high level and literally propagate the abolitionist movement in London and, and in America. And 
and the church is blasted about this a lot of times because a lot of the church was complicit and was silent on the issue. And they should have been condemned for that. That's why there's not just a conflict between the church and the world. There's even a conflict within the church itself. Sometimes we don't stand for the right things. But at the end of the day, it was still the church. It was still Christians that helped lead the abolitionist movement. You can't ignore that. And so Christian ethics informed progress in these areas. But that's not even why Paul didn't speak to it. One of the big reasons Paul didn't speak to it is because the type of slavery that Paul was actually dealing with in the Roman Empire was overwhelmingly related to indentured servanthood. And so that word slave is used actually in place of that language, indentured servanthood. And what an indentured servant would have been was somebody that generally was in a lower economic position or found themselves in debt. And I understand there's some complexity and nuance there, but overall found themselves in a, 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 a tough economic situation and found that serving in that household would provide more security and stability for them than doing it elsewhere. So they chose that. And, and so that's a big part of what t- Paul's talking about, which actually has less to do with race Right, he already dealt with race, right? Jew and Gentile. Now he's really dealing with class. He's talking about rich and poor. People that that employ indentured servants, I use that word loosely. And 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 people that are working in a household, and I use that word slowly, uh, loosely because I know it's nuanced. He's talking about classes, and, and so here he's he's confronting favoring one class over another. And as I already mentioned, Northwood Church, I see diversity in these spaces. People who come from the, the most underprivileged, underserved, under-resourced communities and experiences, sitting next to and worshiping with their hands lifted high, singing with one voice next to people who have far more resource. And it's beautiful. And I'm so thankful that God has created a place like this. Then he says male and female. The Bible also opposes the devaluation of men and women. Neither men nor women should be devalued. Now, historically, we do know that in ancient culture, women were devalued at a high level. And, and this, is, this is very difficult for a, a lot of women and, and us that empathize with that, that experience. And we have so many things that have come out of you know, the, the early 20th century to, to you know, take some ground in regards to that. Not all of it informed by Christian ethics. And so now you have people who are almost so advocating for women's rights that they would also even devalue men's rights. And neither of those are right. Men and women have equal worth and value in the kingdom of God. We have to get to a place, if we haven't already, where we think that way where we live our lives that way, where we lead that way, where we serve together that way, where we build a community together that way. And I think that's what Northwood Church is doing. You know, I think we're being faithful to what Romans chapter 2, and and obviously continuing to try to grow in these things, faithful to what Romans chapter 2 says in in, uh, verse 11, where God shows no partiality. And, And we cannot get a political angle on this. We must, as a church, lead well through this because in the kingdom of God, there's no group of people who has more value, more favor than another. In Christ, we're all one. Reminded of the woman at the well. In an ancient culture, Jesus, a man, went to a woman. Jesus, a Jew, 
went to a Samaritan who was despised. Jesus, a Jew, went to a Samaritan who was probably poor. And he ministered to her right there where she was at because he showed no partiality. And he said, we can worship together. No longer on these mountains. It's no longer on Gerizim. It's no longer here. It's no longer there. It's here. And he joins all people groups. Now, the second cultural issue that we're going to address is the conflict of abortion. I want you to consider for just a moment how sensitive a subject this is for so many people. Maybe, maybe some of you in this room have either participated in helping someone have an abortion. Maybe you yourself have had an abortion. Or maybe you're just passionate about this topic. Maybe it's around the issue of women's rights. Maybe it's around the issue of freedom of choice. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons people are passionate about these topics. And and honestly, I've got friends on both sides of this conversation. And while we don't agree on everything, I still love those people. They love me. And, And because there's so many diverse views, there's also diverse views of the consequences of allowing or prohibiting abortion in a society. And we got to examine all of this. And so I'm going to, again, be skipping rocks on a really sensitive situation today, but I hope you catch the heart of it. So just like racism, abortion is also so politically charged. It's, it's so leveraged for the purpose of advancing political agendas. It's not just about the rights and choice. It's, it's so much more crooked and wicked. (laughs) But let's put all of that aside and let's ask ourselves again, why do we think or feel the way we think or feel about these things? What does God think about this, about abortion? So here we go. There are many reasons that women do have abortions and abortion advocates fight for those reasons I mentioned, freedom of choice or whatever. And so here's some statistics from uh, the Charlotte Lozier Institute that were from 2022 and have up, been updated in 23, and I think they're similar. And these statistics are also based on and related to uh, two s- sources of statistics, um, which is an overarching tally of the number of abortions that happened in 2022. The CDC has a conservative estimate of 615,000 abortions in 2022. Fifteen thousand. The Guttmacher Institute, which is where Charlotte Lozier also partners with and draws a lot of their sourcing, has a much more expansive estimate, and many people would say that it's reliable. At nine hundred and thirty thousand abortions in one year, twenty twenty two. 0.2% of those abortions were given, as you can see, due to people's concern for the risk to the woman's life or major bodily function. Man, I, I couldn't imagine having to process through what that would be like for a woman whose life was literally at risk and she's pregnant. And maybe you're a family and you're a husband and oh, just the, the tension. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't let my values and my principles inform my decisions, but I am saying that would be a tough spot. Don't you think? Can we empathize for just a moment? How about 0.3% for rape and incest? 
These are the most severe things we're talking about here as to why women would have an abortion. Rape and incest is an incredible trauma against a woman's body, against a woman's soul. It's, it's a violation. You want to talk about violating sanctity of life. That is a violation of the sanctity of life. I could imagine that woman would have some conflict in her soul imagining carrying a child after that would happen to her. Let's, let's empathize for just a moment, okay? But we are talking about 0.5%. That is not 5%. That is five-tenths of a percent of the, the, the experiences. Five-tenths. Now let's look at the next one, 1.3% due to abnormality in the unborn baby. Uh, abnormalities could extend all the way to, well, my son was born with an abnormality, what would be considered abnormal. And actually, I follow a, uh, if you don't know, my son has a limb difference. And if you don't know, I, f- I follow a, uh, a page that talks about this. That's a group that supports those that walk through limb difference uh, experiences. It's called Lucky Fin Project. And um, there are many parents who opt to either abort, but in this page especially, we see offer for adoption those babies because they're too abnormal for them to cope with. And women choose to have abortions for these reasons. 2.5% for other physical health concerns. Now, we know these are not life-threatening. So these are health concerns. What does that mean? I don't know exactly for sure. But they're non-life-threatening. And and if you tally all those up, you've got 4.3% of all abortions. So 0.5 for the most severe, 4.3 for those that are increasingly less severe. That leaves 95.7% of abortions are done for elective and unspecified reasons. What does that include? Well, a young mother that can't afford the baby. She's fearful. A young mother or maybe a young couple that's not ready to be a parent or parents. They want to pursue their education further. Remember, they call it planned parenthood. They're trying to plan their life according to their desires and their goals. Maybe it's that they desire to be at a certain age. Maybe they have relationship problems with their significant other and they can't imagine raising a baby on their own. Maybe they just don't want a baby. All of these reasons fall into elective and unspecified. 95.7%. Let's take the uh, conservative number from the CDC, 615,000 babies. At 95.7%, we are talking about 588,000 babies unborn that are aborted for what I would personally consider not too good of a reason. Elective and unspecified. I know it's a complicated conversation. I do have empathy for these harder topics. But this is staggering. This is heartbreaking. The number of lives. Every year. Estimates of 50 million since Roe versus Wade. That's a genocide. And abortion isn't even new to our society. The first century church dealt with this as well. Actually, all throughout history, 
There's been an ongoing conflict surrounding abortion. But not only abortion, infanticide, which is the murder of children outside of the womb, which we see some states trying to legislate permission. (laughs) And actually, a lot of that was done under the guise of child sacrifice, which was pagan ritualistic worship. And Greek philosophers would have supported this. Aristotle, we like to quote these philosophers, not realizing some of their stances on things. Aristotle, who's a very popular philosopher, was pro-abortion and pro-infanticide. That's pro-eugenics. That's pro-ethnic cleansing. That's pro-murder. Romans murdered their children if the father didn't want the child due to gender, due to deformation, right? Those uh, unspecified reasons or because they simply didn't want a child that they would have to feed. And the early church opposed these practices. And we know it to be true because it's not even just in the Bible. All the, the Bible opposes them, and we'll talk about those things in just a little bit. But the apostles' teaching from Acts 2, where they gave themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the, teach, the uh, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer, that apostles' doctrine is not just the ancient scriptures. It is also in the Didache. The Didache was early church teaching that was summarized and and compiled to talk about what the church would or wouldn't be open to, and it called abortion murder. It's not just a modern, short-sighted, Western view that hasn't progressed. This has been a view for all time. Like, this this is a big deal. And Jewish culture was always opposed to these as well. Now, some of you might have done some research and have looked at Numbers chapter 5, and and you read, well, apparently there was law given by God to Moses to the people that if a woman committed adultery, that she was to drink uh, bitter water. And that bitter water in the NIV says, if she was guilty of of adultery, that, that she would miscarry. Only the New International Version says that. The other versions actually don't say that, and people are using this to justify it. But what the other versions say is if she drinks the bitter water and and, uh, is found that if, if she committed adultery, that she would actually go barren, not be able to conceive. Much different and not justifiable for abortion. And so we have to disarm that argument because, you know, some people want to use the, the Bible to talk about this. But what does the Bible say about this? Well, the God instructs the Israelites regarding child sacrifice in Deuteronomy chapter 12, where it says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. He's talking about this cold, calloused infanticide where the value of that child's life was so diminished that they were willing to sacrifice a child. There was no sanctity of life. So so the Bible speaks to that side of it, but the Bible also emphasizes an ethic that life is sacred even in the womb. Not just out of the womb, but in the womb. In Psalm 139.13, it says, for you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's, uh, (laughs) mother's womb. That's this picture of God being intentional in his creation of not a glob of cells, of not a fetus, but of a baby, an unborn baby. God was intentionally forming and crafting each and every baby 
In Jeremiah 1.5, we see God speaking to the prophet saying, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That means set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, a voice for God. And what we're seeing here is that before Jeremiah was even conceived, God says, before you were in the womb, I already knew you. This is powerful stuff. God knows us before we're even conceived. The conception is literally just the act of him speaking our life into existence. He knew us before even that moment. And the Bible speaks about this in many other places, which unfortunately I can't get into today, but I can assure you it's consistent in its messaging. And so God raises this standard for sanctity of human life. And obviously the scripture validates that, but even science now validates that all biology, this is a biologist, I think at Michigan, Minnesota, I can't remember, but I saw this quote this weekend. And she says, all of biology starts at the time of fertilization. Biology equals life. Life happens at conception. Even science agrees with what the Bible says. And we're not permitted the choice to extinguish that life. Not by God's standards. Not by his ethics. And the same spirit that informed the ethics of the time of the New Testament church are informing our ethics now. And so the world prioritizes quality of life. At least 95% of the decisions for abortion are prioritizing what seemed to be quality of life at the expense of sanctity of life. Could you imagine that we would choose quality of life over sanctity of life? But isn't that really what happens with war? Isn't it people just wanting more resources, more power? Destroy people, destroy quality of life, or uh, destroy sanctity of life to improve our quality of life. And that's, this, is, this is just humanity. This is why we do these things. It's in nature. And the church must be loving and compassionate in a space like this. Like we've, we've, I've, I've, got, I've sat with a woman, I, I remember, and a number of women, but I sat with one particular woman, and I remember the regret and the pain and, and, the, and, the, and the shame and the condemnation and the anger at the person who contributed to her aborting one of her children. And I remember how brokenhearted I was for her. It was hard. We must let our hearts break for people who are, are experiencing these things, have experienced these things, and may even still be in the future wrestling with and deciding whether or not to make a decision like this. We have to have compassion. God calls us to it. But we've also got to raise a banner. And abortion is opposed to what God teaches. It's opposed to his ethics. And it's not informed by the spirit of God. It's informed by the spirit of the world. And so I just want to say, if you've been guilty of the sin of partiality, or if you have willfully committed abortion, whether knowingly or unknowingly, you've terminated the life of the unborn in your womb. I just want to say, I love you. We as a community love you. We love you. And we have compassion for you. And I'm sorry 
that your life has led you to a place where you've either felt the way you felt about other people or had to make decisions or have been forced into decisions that, that broke something inside of you, your soul, your heart. I'm sorry that you've been found in this position. And I, and I know that, that God is compassionate towards you as well. But I've got to tell you, whether it's partiality or abortion, it is sin. And if that sin is not brought to the feet of Jesus and his blood does not pay for that sin, that sin will be judged by a righteous and just God. And, and so the beautiful thing about this moment, though, is, is that I also... Not only am bearing that news, but I bear good news. And the good news is only so good because the bad news is so bad. Yes, that sin will be judged, but the good news is, is that the gospel of grace is God offering forgiveness for those that have wrestled with sin, that have not yet repented. Forgiveness is for anyone that would surrender at the feet of Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, God or Christ died for us. One and the same. God stepped off his throne and died for us. He died for you so that he shed blood through his sacrifice, through his stripes that he took upon his back so that you could be forgiven and that you would not only share in his death to your sin nature, but you would share in his life through the resurrection of the Holy Spirit. That's why when we talk about he began to breathe and, and rose to life and we cheer during that song, Living Hope. It's because it's that same spirit that rose Christ from the grave that lives and dwells in us, that raises us to life. And so, yes, we should be cheering that we have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ.